Hello, Poppets, and welcome to the Prove Me Wrong podcast, episode six. This one's a little bit different than the other ones, in which all the other podcasts have been solo casts. Uh, this one, I hosted my very first interview, and it was done uh, via Skype with a guy by the name of Justin Wren. I don't want to say too much in the intro because you'll hear a lot of his story inside the podcast, but he's just an awesome guy. I really enjoyed the conversation, and when I first had the idea of even starting up this podcast, I made a list of people that I would love to be able to interview on here, and he was in the top three. So him coming on and giving me about 40, 45 minutes, I can't remember how long it was, um, was just a real, real treat. The guy is just a stellar human. Uh, The world would be a better place with more people like him. So I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. Without further ado, Justin Wren. Right now, I'm lucky to be joined by just an all-around awesome human being. He was on Season 10 of The Ultimate Fighter. He currently fights in Bellator, where he is, as I like to say, the future champion of the heavyweight division. And he's the founder of an amazing organization called Fight for the Forgotten. Uh, Right now, they're working to raise $50,000 for their new campaign, Dig Deeper. And every donation will be matched dollar for dollar, up to $25,000. With your support, they will be able to empower their field partner in northern Uganda, the Young Men drillers to dig deeper than ever before as they work to bring safe and living water to nearly 5,000 people. He was formerly known as the Viking, but now he's better known as the Big Pygmy, Justin Wren. Justin, welcome, and thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Hey, thank you so much. That was, uh, that was the best introduction yet. Um, <laughs> I'll take it, man. I'm all right. That's what I'm working toward. Yeah, thank you. That's awesome, man. So before we really get into it, um, I just got to ask a fight question off the top. Uh, did you happen to catch any of the Mayweather and McGregor World Tour? And are you giving Connor any shot in pulling out this victory? Uh, tough question. Um, uh, well, I watched. Sorry, the answer. One of the questions was I watched all the press conferences. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> every every single one, and it was quite a circus. And uh, uh, but at the same time, I think it was really great for both sports um, to re-energize. I don't know, just to re-energize the fans of boxing. I think, and then also just to have MMA fans show up like that was pretty incredible. Shows what kind of a uh, I don't know what kind of iconic fighter. Uh, McGregor's turned into having all those fans show up and drown out the Mayweather fans. So, pretty awesome. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. I think that's why there's so many people that are excited about the fight. Obviously, I think in a boxing match, Mayweather should school McGregor and hardly get hit. And if you know he's the best defensive boxer maybe of all times um, and has never lost, how is Conor McGregor going to beat him. Um, but at the same time, you look at everything McGregor has going for him. I think he's got the, well, it's hard to say he's got the mental edge, but he's mm-hmm. got the confidence. Yes. He's got the confidence. He's got the youth. He's got the power. He's got the reach. He's got the southpaw advantage on his side. 
um, I don't know about advantage, but just the awkward style and being a southpaw and moving unlike anyone that's ever moved in front of Mayweather. He's got a lot of advantages, and I think the belief aspect is something that every fighter needs, and that gives you a huge advantage going into a fight. So I don't know, man. It's really interesting. I think if I had to bet my house on it, it would be Mayweather for sure. But um, I don't know. It's really interesting, and as an MMA fighter, I want uh, McGregor of course yeah that's kind of what I've been telling my audience in it is like on paper obviously uh, Mayweather has the advantage in all aspects but what Connor has me on is that I believe in his belief that he believes he can do this you know I mean mm. he, he talks about the visualization of things yeah. a lot and I mean you do too in that aspect but I, I truly do believe mm-hmm. in his belief that he thinks he can get this done yeah, I, I totally do too. And that's a dangerous, dangerous guy to get in there with. Um, and so, yeah, I, I honestly think he could shock the world with a punch heard around the world. Right. Um, <laughs> in the first four rounds could end it. You know, it would be absolutely incredible for him personally, but for all of the fight fans uh, in MMA. Um, it would almost be sad, though, for Mayweather leaving his legacy like that. And he could have walked away 49 and 0, like uh, McGregor's saying. And that's a huge thing that he's getting in. I, I mean, Mayweather doesn't show it, but I, I see him getting in his head. And so, um, at least with some of the things he says, I'm like, man, I am putting my legacy on the line with this hungry, confident guy. That, and, and, and even Dana pointed out, you know, how um, Pacquiao just got beat, which I watched that fight. I didn't think he actually lost. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the crowd was so behind him. And I think uh, McGregor could have this crowd so behind him going into this fight. Yeah, I was blown away. I mean, because I was at the press conference they had here in L.A. And going into it, we were kind of talking about it. And it was like, all right, do we think it'll be like 50-50 of the crowd? But, I mean, it was 95% pro-McGregor. I mean, that that really did take me by surprise. I mean, the whole world, it feels like, is rooting for him to pull this out against uh, Mayweather. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, quite a shock to me, especially Toronto, um, and then obviously London. Um, but Toronto, I didn't expect it to be that one-sided. Yeah, it's just been a great spectacle, and I'm getting excited uh, for it to come. We're, we're getting in the home stretch of it now. But, um, you know, let's kind of get into the whole point of this this conversation today you know i mean your, your story is so multifaceted and your life has included some of the highest of highs some of the lowest of lows from being diagnosed with depression at 13 to battling addiction to attempting suicide at 23 and now turning it all around and living a life of total purpose and servitude uh to the pygmies of the congo you opened up your ted talk with a stat that just i mean it blew my mind that there was um or that there are 27 million slaves currently living in the world today and some of those who are still enslaved are the Mbuti pygmies am i saying that right is the Mbuti? yeah Mbuti. okay and then so i mean first things first for those people that are just hearing your story for the first time today who are the Mbuti pygmies and what's happening down in the congo yeah so i mean like you said there's uh, that's the minimum. I went with the lowest stat I found. Uh, there's other stats that say 30 and 33, and even one that says 37 million slaves on Earth today. Um, and that's more than ever in human history, even if it's just 27 million. Um, just, right? That's mm-hmm. not the right word to use. Um, but yeah, and about 600,000 of those, anywhere from 400 to 600,000 of those are the Mabuti pygmies. 
and um, they're just they're an incredible people group, man. I just absolutely uh, I have a smile on my face just <laughs> talking about them because I love them. Uh, they're they're truly some of the sweetest, most amazing, and awesome people on the face of the earth. Um, and they're this hunter-gatherer tribe. Um, they were the first people of Congo. A lot of people say, anthropologists say, the first people group of Africa. Um, and uh, they've just always been um, looked down upon and given basically no human rights or at least equal rights. Um, and they have no land rights uh, until recently. We were able to get them back 3,000 acres of land that they own um, that they'll pass down from generation to generation. And that was done on the the local, the state, and the national level. So that was a huge, huge, huge victory for for them, for us. And uh, and yeah, it's just it, their average height's only four foot seven, um, and that's for the men. Uh, so wow. they're a smaller people group. Um, they live deep in the rainforest, uh, but with all the deforestation, they were made uh, extremely vulnerable. Um, and kind of had to come out of the forest and live on the roadsides. Um, next to the people group that they would always trade with. And actually they used to have kind of the upper hand, but they never abused that. They had the meat, they had the, the bush meat, the forest uh, animals, um, the wild hogs and the forest antelopes and the monkeys and the different things that they could bring out and trade for corn and beans and rice and, um, and peanuts. And so them having the protein and, and the, the wild fruits and vegetables um, they had the upper hand, but then deforestation took that life away from them um, where they could no longer provide in that trade relationship, mm -hmm. and that caused a little bit of a rift, and then they couldn't provide for themselves. And so then they had no land of their own, and the land was stolen from out from under their feet. Um, and so it's just, it's there's so many... So many things we could tell you about, but uh, Namboli was the first slave that I had ever met, um, and she was carrying about a 100 to 120 pound bag of charcoal on her back. The bag was taller than she was. She had to lean over. Her slave master put it on her back and tie a rope around her head in the bag to keep it secure. Um, and she would walk about three miles with that, and she would do that two or three times a day. Um, and so, you know, she might have weighed 70 pounds, being four foot something. Um, and so, um, it's just a brutal way of life uh, that they've come under in the last three or four generations um, since kind of the startup of, of the mechanized kind of um, chainsaws. And so, uh, man, lots of different stuff I can go into, but I, right. I have, my first introduction to the world's water crisis was um, Andy Bo, a little boy who's one and a half years old and who was one and a half years old whenever I was holding him. And he passed away, and it was just due to dirty water. Um, and it wrecked me. It absolutely changed my life. Um, you know, growing up, getting very heavily bullied, and that's why I went through depression. And, mm -hmm. um, and then kind of fighting out of that and finding my outlet and purpose and different stuff with wrestling and sports. I don't know about purpose, but an outlet and a passion. Um, and then feeling like I found a purpose in helping them uh, because I was I was adopted in. I told you how they're they're smaller little mm -hmm. people, um, great big hearts, but uh, but they call me you know the big pygmy. Uh, my name is Mabutima and Bo there, <laughs> and it just means the big pygmy. And so uh, I've become family with them, Chabasiko and Jailua and Bajanji and Baiwanja and Manu and Sabalina. Like these are 
these are people who gave me my name of Ethiosa, uh, which is kind of my family name there. Um, and I just, uh, I love them, man. They've become a second family to me. So I've, I, which honestly, I get homesick for there. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really get homesick for the States, but I just, I miss them dearly. And, uh, and so we're just working on land, water, and food initiatives uh, for them. And right now, currently, with the Dig Deeper campaign, uh, those are the guys in Uganda that risked their lives to come to the Congo and help me whenever I was struggling to drill wells. We had failed over and over and over again, um, at least eight or nine uh, failures on different well sites. And, man, it could have been more like 15 or 18, if I consider you know, we try to drill well here, we pick up, we move, we pick up, we move in the mm-hmm. same village, but we had literally failed eight or nine different times. They came and lived with us. They had had over a hundred wins under their belts in Uganda. And uh, they came and taught me how to drill wells. And these are Ugandans that were changing Uganda. And they came to Congo, almost died on their first day there. Um, and Swing was killed. And, uh, <clears throat> and they taught us everything we know about well drilling. And so now we're trying to love them back and give back to them because they've given us the opportunity to drill 60, actually our well drilling teams, drilling number 64, wow. 65 right now. And so it's been pretty incredible. And what amount of time frame is that? Is, is that just within the last four years? Is that correct that you guys have built that many wells? Uh, I would say in the last three years, technically. Wow. But yes, um, 65 wells and Water 4, though, who uh, Fight for the Forgotten is now an initiative. It was our own 501c3 nonprofit, but now we've come underneath the wing of uh, Water 4, and we're an initiative underneath them. And last year alone, so what we're all about and why we mesh so well and why we came underneath them is we have the same heart, which is opportunity is greater than charity. Mm-hmm. That uh, charity can be great, but opportunity is always better. And so how do we give people a hand up instead of a hand out. And so you ask the people that are facing poverty or that are in the Congo or the pygmies and you ask them, what do they need? And they won't say like, give me a bottle of water or give me some food. It's like, teach me how to grow my own food. Teach me how to drill my own well. Teach me how to do this and that. Like, give me an opportunity and I'll do it for myself. And so, um, and I'll do it for my family. We'll do it for our tribe. We'll do Mm -hmm. it for our people. And so that's what we're trying to do is just put the tools in their hands um, and the training and the knowledge in their heads and send them out and let them be the only change uh, that that they want to see in their community. Man, you know, Justin, that's the thing I love the most about your organization is that the sole purpose is to empower the pygmies and to give them the tools to be able to continue to provide for themselves for decades. You know, I mean, I'm not here to poo-poo on other charities, but so many other charities practice what I like to call the Band-Aid philanthropy, where they just try and do the quick fix to a very complicated problem. People are hungry. Oh, here's some food. People are thirsty. Drop off water. But that's not what you guys have done and where you're educating and training these people so that they can continue to do this for years and years to come um, was that something you guys knew going into it or was it just having the conversations with them i know you just touched on it briefly but how did you guys finally come to this idea that it should be about as you said um opportunity being better than charity for them well i think just sitting down and listening to them yeah. my first trip um you know we we had a different well it was really just to go sit with them and and learn from them is what we call it kind of a scouting trip, you know, just, just going and 
seeing and seeing if there was an opportunity for us to help. And then the best way to do that is what my second trip, which was like, okay, I, I got to come and see and stay with them a little bit, but it was so dangerous at that time um, that there was rebel groups in the area. And so it was kind of dangerous for us to even be out with the pygmies for extended periods of time because we were kind of a target being different than being Westerners. And so, and not being well known or well received at that time, um, you know, and, and we had some corrupt translators. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't get a great feel for it. Um, and the translators we had didn't even like the pickings. They hated the pickings. They thought that they were half man, half animal. Gosh. And so it was just a brutal first trip. Um, and then the second trip found some good translators and went out there and just lived with them for uh, a month. And the goal was to live with, listen to, learn from. So that way as a community, we could come up with the best way to love them. And so we call it uh, around the campfire. We call that campfire university mm-hmm. is what the pygmies call it. Um, Cause that's where they take us to school and teach us the most about their culture. And we just ask questions. And around that fire, I've had, uh, tears of joy, just laughing and laughing, and uh, and I've also cried my hardest tears uh, of I don't know of just um, I don't know why that word popped in my head. I've never used it really, but just of <laughs> anguish, just like uh, just like no, not again. You know, with Andy Bo and then another guy uh, Babo, who was about nine months old, and my friend Sangule and another friend Katula, a little girl named Little Mo. Um, and so these friends of mine that have passed away, uh, just because they didn't have access to, to clean water or, you know, they had waterborne illness that, that robbed them of a good life to live or just stopped it too short. And, um, so yeah, it's, that's, that's kind of how it all came about was, um, just living with them and then seeing, seeing other organizations do it in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And I would call it toxic charity or just, um, just there's a book out called when helping hurts and it's a good one. I think uh, a lot of it's really great. And, uh, it just talks about, you know, people don't realize when they're helping, they could, they think they're helping a little bit, but really they could be hurting a lot. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you, you need to think things through and the cultural like ramifications of your actions, um, that you would never know unless you understood the people or listened to them and they'll, they'll let you understand or if you suffer with them, you know, it's one thing to, read about it or even go see it but whenever you live it all of a sudden your mindset starts to change and you're like oh wow like i could come in and do this but really what they need is this mm-hmm. you know and what are some of those challenges that you have to deal with justin in helping both the oppressed and the impress the oppressor in the situation i mean were the mbuti hesitate to you also assisting the people that have done the most done them the most harm you know uh there was a time or two where they would ask why are you helping them? And then, um, but not really. There was a lot of them that, that especially the chiefs, the chiefs got it, their wives, the, the elders, they're like, oh yeah, well, if you, if, if you just help us, it's going to make us a target too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the best way to help is to love both sides because if you love one side and hate the other or just neglect the other, it's only going to come back and hurt the ones you're trying to love the most. And so, um, it was just collective. And, and what really we were trying to do is like, and, and I still try to tell myself, you know, I'm the big pygmy, but there's two sides of the community, at least in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and the community is 
is two people groups. And so to help the community come up together is the best thing for everybody. And so how do we do that? And so the land purchases helped their oppressors uh, financially, but it helped the pygmies get land of their own for the very first time. Um, both sides got clean water um, and the knowledge shows how to either drill well or at least the knowledge of like the wash program. So water and sanitation and hygiene, latrines, uh, outside of those, tippy taps or hand washing stations, the importance of soap and clean hands, even after you wash your dishes to put them on shelves and help them build these shelves outside of their huts to where they could sit in the sun and dry, but also they weren't on the ground drying to where the, you know, the, the chickens could get on them or sure. you know, a kid's feet or something like that. And so setting them up on shelves to where they're, they're more sanitary or just better sanitation. And so, um, yeah. So, and then coming in with farmers or sorry, agriculturalists to help the farmers, um, teach them better farming practices uh, for the makapala or the non-pygmies, and then also helping the pygmies uh, learn how to farm for the first time. And so, um, man, it's been really, really cool. Uh, there's um, that's going to be coming out. I'm saying it's awesome, but I mean it's <laughs> my life story. But but I, I just love how um, the pygmies have their own voice in it, and and the makapala, the non-pygmies. So they they get to and chiefs and local government officials and um, our team leaders. And, and so it's just really cool for them to be able to sit down and explain it in a feature length film um, and some like very cinematic shots of like almost like planet earth style yeah. going through the forest. And so it's, it's telling a lot and even fighters like Justin Gucci are in it and, uh, and Joe Rogan's in it. Um, and so it's going to be a really cool film kind of connecting it's called fighting for freedom it's connecting me and my fighting but also how we can fight for people that's awesome yeah i, I think all the video work you guys are doing down there is really going to help kind of like control the narrative and get their story out which i know is like a big goal of yours man because i think it's the video that's on the fight for the forgotten where the one guy's just talking about the banana trees and there's just so many there that he can't mm. even keep track or can't even keep count you can just see the joy it, it gives me goosebumps just even recanting it right now and i think that's just going to be a huge part in this because th they're working their asses off man and they're just the little things yeah. are just bringing them so much joy yeah and it's so cool to see that you know because they used to work so there's over 350 banana trees there i actually think there's over 400 or 450 awesome. now but last time i was there it's like 350 and uh they used to work from sun up to sundown in a family a family of three or a family of seven would get anywhere from two or three four five bananas for a full day's work um, and, you know, for a family of seven getting paid three bananas, they're splitting a banana. And that's the only food they have that day. And so to think it used to be like that, but now they're on their own land, working their own land, sweating, but working hard. And, and the return on it is so much that they can't even eat all the bananas that they're growing. <laughs> they have to go to the market and sell them. And whenever they're selling that, they're making money and they're learning the value of money getting paid for the first time in their lives. Um, and then they're able to send their kids to school or buy them school uniforms. And it's just giving them pride and dignity. And just, uh, it's such an encouragement to them. And it's such an encouragement to me seeing how much they progressed and come along. And it's just been 
really incredible, man. It's uh, the joy of my life for sure. One of the Chiefs' sons was just the first kid to attend school out there. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, little Jippy, and uh, so so amazing. Um, he's like. Uh, I don't know. My little friend, he's, he's uh-huh. my, one of my favorite little dudes, my wife and I, and he's always by my side whenever I'm there, and, uh, and just my little buddy. And, um, and I was trying to say bye to him last time, and I was like, Where, where's Jippy? And it was a Monday, and, uh, and I'm like, I'm leaving, and I'm not going to be able to tell him bye. And they're like, it's okay, we'll tell him he said bye. And uh, I get in the car or the truck, and we start driving, and also I see out a little schoolhouse there. Uh, all of a sudden, on the way out, Chippy's running out of school because he sees our truck, and he waves us down. And also I get to jump out, and I see him, and he's in this crisp white shirt and these bright blue shorts, and that's the school uniform there in Congo. Um, and he comes up and runs and gives me a big hug, and I'm like, whoa. You know, Chippy's going to be chief one day, and he's going to be the first really educated Mabuti um, Pygmy in that area to, to be able to even represent their people group, maybe even on the governmental level, which would be absolutely huge. That's amazing. What, what are tensions like now that you've been down there between um, the Mabuti and is it Makpala? Is that correct? Am, am I yeah, saying it the right way? I mean, means, yeah, Makpala means non-pygmies. Okay. And so there's over 200, there's over 200 tribes in Congo and we just don't, Bill and I is one or two or three of them. Um, because if there's 400,000 to 600,000 that have been enslaved, it's a lot of the different tribes. Uh-huh. And so uh, I've dealt with uh, three or four of the ones that have been enslaving or impressing uh, the pygmies. And if I name them and don't go through the whole laundry list of names, then I just don't want any sure. repercussions coming back to, to them. So just the Makpala means non-pygmies. And the relationship has been actually really positive in the areas that we've been um, and worked with on the film, we have some one of the Makpala chiefs um, who also ran uh, the local clinic, and he's on film crying, talking about how um, he was going through a book and talking about how, or sorry, record book of the last um, like three. Actually, it has been four years now because uh, the three years before, or sorry, it's only been three. So the three years before we got there. Um, 87% on average, 87% of their cases for the three years before um, were waterborne illness. Gosh. And so 87% of their sickness in that hospital were waterborne illness. The year after we got the water wells there, it was down to 10% or like, I think 9%. Um, the year, the next year after that, it was at like 6%. And this year it's on track to being under 5%. So, um, wow, man, you're stamping it out. Yeah, well, that's what happens whenever people get clean water. Think about how many times we've had water pouring on this. Right. Sometimes if you have it, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, you just don't get it if you have access to clean water and then you have good sanitation and hygiene. Um, and so um, it's it's really awesome uh, to, to see that change in that village and them talking about how we actually came in there and through the oppression that was happening and through the relieving of that, through the land, the water, the food, how it actually showed them and their, their people group that, uh, that the slavery that they had been doing was actually more of a burden than a blessing and how we've brought in peace and how, you know, it's just, it does, the, the community has come up together. 
And so we call it Tamika Pomoja. And Tamika Pomoja means working together. Basically, like when we work together, beautiful things happen. And so um, there's a Swahili proverb they taught me there, and I love it. Um, I try to say it uh, to a lot of different people whenever you know people think we got to do things on our own, and we got to be strong enough, and we got to be independent, which is, it is, it is great strength. But at the same time, there's weaknesses that come with that because there I learned if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And so in life, you know, it's a, it's a marathon. It's not a spread. Like we need each other and we need to learn from each other and grow from each other and lean on each other when things are tough and hard. Um, and so that's how we can go far in life. And so I love that those are some of the life lessons I've been taught there. Yeah. And I mean, this is one of those things like you, you, you said that stat before about how 5,000 children under the age of five die every day because of dirty water. And it just makes you like want to pound your head against the wall, how this isn't like more well-known information and how we're not doing more to be able to fix the problem. Because it seems like to me, we have all the tools in place. It's just putting it yeah. into motion because I mean, look at what you've done in just the, this quick four years, you know? Yeah, it's just it's just about empowering the people um, that that need it the most. Uh, so it, it it doesn't mean we all have to go over there and drill wells for them. Mm-hmm. They'll drill them themselves. They just need access to the solution, and then they'll be the answer to their own problem. And so I I think that's the way we're going to knock out the water crisis in our lifetime. And I'm truly encouraged because Water Four last year alone we were able to empower. Uh, 396 men and women to have jobs to wow. drill wells. And through those 396 jobs of in 16 African nations, um, they were able to drill 690 water wells for themselves. Um, and that gave water to over 172,000 people just last wow. year alone. And so that's, that's it. You know, Fight for the Forgotten is one of 44 well drilling teams. And it's just, and we're about to have, um, uh, we could actually grow to four well drilling teams, um, potentially by the end of the year. And so we actually have, have multiplied now into two. So we're actually two of 45 well drilling teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, man, it's so, it's so awesome. You know, I get text messages every day, um, on WhatsApp and a new well is being installed, uh, from teams across the globe. And so, or at least the continent of Africa. It's just so encouraging. You know, 690 last year, that means, you know, if we do that again this year, it's at least two water wells a day um, that are that are being drilled. So every day is a good day. Um, and the other teams have challenges. We're able to encourage them. And so it's, it's great, man. It's a beautiful thing. And that's why we're really trying to encourage young men drillers right now. They're going into a village called Lecho, and they're trying to give access to uh, to water for 5,000 people. And that's why we're trying to raise that $50,000. Um, right now, I think we're only $11,000 away. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have 50, yeah, 55% of our goal of raising, um, what is it? Raising 25,000 because we have a dollar for dollar match. So someone, a very generous donor says they'll throw in $25,000 if we can raise $25,000 ourselves. So we're trying to rally the troops, trying to get people involved and let people know that, hey, just $10 per person um, gets someone clean water. And so if, if someone wants to even donate up to $75, 
some people can donate more than that, but if mm-hmm. someone donates $75, we have this awesome dig deeper shirt that, that we'll send out to you. Um, and these young men drillers are setting up these, so they're drilling five wells with that $50,000 and they're setting up these water vending kiosks. And so what that is, is it's empowering the locals to pay for water, um, which is like, it's a participatory. So they pay five cents for five gallons. Um, not very much, right? Mm-hmm. Five cents for five, five gallons of water. But what that, that money does is it keeps that water tower and that vending kiosk like afloat. Um, and it also goes into repairs for it so that it's going to be very sustainable, hopefully lifelong wells. And then um, it goes to drilling more wells. So at 5,000 people paying five cents per jerry can, that money starts to add up to where we're able to drill at least one well per those five uh, vending kiosks per year. And so we get these five in there first, then every year we'll be able to drill probably at least five more. And so it's just going to be adding up. It's going to be a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing, Justin. I mean, what's the ultimate goal of the fight for the forgotten? Is there a finish line? Is it when you guys secure secure X amount of land, when you build so many wells? Um, what What is the end goal for fight for the forgotten? I don't... Honestly, man, I don't know that there is an end goal uh-huh. except for that the Mabuti Pygmies know that they're loved, um, that they're being empowered, um, and that they're continuing to progress. And so, and that we're we're helping them in whichever practical ways that makes sense. And so, um, we're gonna our lane has been water because water changes everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, whenever you hear that stat, it going from basically nine out of 10 cases to less than one out of 10. Um, uh, just one village getting clean water. Uh, that, that's a game changer, a lifesaver. It's even been um, responsible for 1,500 people getting their freedom. And so I want the pygmies to know that they're not forgotten, uh, that they're loved and cared about, and that they're awesome and amazing. And on the practical side of things, we're going to do anything and everything we can to to love them and we're going to stay in our lane uh, mostly in, in water but um but we'll do other things as well we've we've replanted four thousand trees in the rainforest of rare hardwoods like mahogany um because that's important to them and so uh we're we're trying to do um what we can so that's awesome justin now your last fight was in march and dude you look stellar you threw one of the gnarliest suplexes i'd ever seen you got the win in the first round via submission and it seemed like everything started to click for you um i I was looking what's next for you in bellator do they have a fight for you um scheduled yet we were talking i was i was hoping to fight in july um but it got it got bumped back and pushed back and so hopefully around October or November, uh, at least by December, I'll be fighting again. Really excited about it. Um, it's going to be a good fight. Uh, well, I don't know who my opponent is yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm, I'm wanting to build off the last fight. You know, two, two big throws and a submission in about two minutes. Um, yeah, I think uh, <laughs> people have been trying to help me come up with a name for that suplex, either the, the water drop or uh, oh, the good. well driller, um, something like that. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that. 
Yeah, man, Bellator has really fully just like embraced your story. And all I ever hear from fighters in Bellator is how well run the organization is and how much they like working for a yeah. guy like Scott Coker. I mean, I know your stint at the UFC was was a short one, but I mean, what are there some of the differences of fighting for Scott and fighting in Bellator opposed to working for Dana and fighting in the UFC? Well, I just say in the UFC, you're you're just a number. Yeah. Um, you're just a fighter. Um, and in Bellator, it seems a lot more like a family vibe. Like they care about you. They come up to you, talk to you. All the employees know your name. You know their names. Um, they ask you about your family. They ask you about. And I'm not. I'm, I know I have a unique story, and they're really engaged with that. But I see that across the board with the fighters. Um, and so it's just a really cool environment. Uh, really cool vibe. Um, and yeah, they just care. They listen. They're creative. Uh, they'll, they'll really work with you to, to make sure you're happy. Um, so, so I love that about them. So it's not just a take it or leave it. It's like, Hey, yeah, we can get creative. Yeah. No, it's it's cool to see it, and I think it benefits you being over there too. I mean, especially with the Reebok deal in the UFC, and you wouldn't be able to promote Fight for the Forgotten quite like you are able to in Bellator. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was the reason I chose to go back to Bellator, or sorry, to go with Bellator, not back to the UFC. Mm-hmm. So I had an offer there, um, and contract to contract, it was similar, uh, but Bellator came in and and sweetened up the pot with like. We're going to feature your story. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Uh, you can wear fights. We've got another fighters for it. We want to rally behind that, you know. And uh, with UFC, they just signed the Reebok deal. They're like, absolutely no sponsors, no this, no that. They were talking about going over to the Congo with me. Um, UFC was. But uh, as I found out recently, um, our documentarian, he's, he's risked his life to go over there to, to make the, the film. But no one will ensure anything because it's an active war zone. So the UFC uh, insider, ultimate insider, whatever the show was, mm-hmm. couldn't get over there. HBO Real Sports couldn't get over there. ESPN couldn't get over there. Um, so, uh, so yeah, there's just it's been really great though. Like Bellator, they they've they've used stuff from our documentarian and have really highlighted uh, what we're doing there. That's awesome, man. So just like one more time, I know you got to run. So what is Dig Deeper? How can people get involved? And uh, where do we go from here? Yeah, so the website is waterford.org slash dig deeper. We're just trying to work these guys with the water vending kiosk. That's going to be the first of their time in Uganda. So we're just helping them dig deeper in the uh, water um I don't know, zone, uh, to, to, to just keep increasing and deepening uh, their knowledge um, and to really help the people in the best way possible. And so, yeah, 10 bucks a person is, is would give someone access to clean water. And so that's, that's I think people can dig deeper than that a lot of times to yeah. give, but, uh, but that's a really tangible number. And for 75, we're able to give people back a T-shirt because – I know that's a little, people like 75 bucks for a t-shirt. Mm-hmm. What's a donation? And, and we're trying to make that money go as far as we can, but it's a sweet shirt. Um, and yeah, man, we're, we're, we're 55% of the way to our goal and we only have till August 1st or actually July 30th or 31st, whichever one it is. Um, and so it's only during the month of July. So anyone, if you guys can rally behind us, that would be absolutely incredible 
because we really want to make a huge difference in the village of Lecho. Yeah, Justin, I mean, to my listeners out there, I'm going to personally match up to $500 to any donations that people give. So if anybody, if you go ahead and donate, just send a screenshot of the receipt. Um, You can send it to me to my email at Grayson at BrushBackInc, that's INC.com, or send it to me on Instagram. And like I said, I'll I'll personally match up to $500 uh, to anybody that donates to the cause. Wow, bro, that is incredible. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Wow, I got a big smile. Thank you, thank awesome, you, thank Justin. You. Yeah, man, I'm telling you, it's going to be incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's just I, I think like a lot of people, we heard about your story from uh, Joe Rogan's podcast and everything, you know. And whenever I see you're coming on, I get so excited. But it takes me like a week to get up the courage to be able to watch it because I know it's just kind of <laughs> it's going to just put everything into perspective. I mean, like, like I know you've recently gotten to floating, which I love too, and it's like these people can't even get access to water and here I am getting to just go float in a float pod mm-hmm. and everything. So, I mean, the story is incredible. Um, keep doing what you're doing. The organization is fight for their forgotten. Their current campaign is dig deeper, dig deeper. And to find out more, visit them at waterford.org backslash dig deep. Uh, Justin, thanks so much for taking the time, man. And good luck to you in the future. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, brother. This is awesome. Thank you for having me on. I I appreciate appreciate you, man. Have a great day. Yeah, you too, buddy. All right. Thanks, Justin. So there you have it. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. Um, I was very nervous going into it. He just has such an incredible story that you want to just be able to do it justice while hoping you get in all the correct information. If you want to hear more of his story, I really encourage you to go look up any uh, his TED Talk on YouTube or any of the podcasts that he'd had previously um, on the Joe Rogan podcast. You just you can't tell the guy's whole story and that that short amount of time i feel like i've heard every one of his podcasts with rogan and each of them are like three hours and there's still more layers to that story i mean the guy's gotten malaria three times he's gotten shingles they talk about the different dangers they've been in there he really goes into his addiction and attempting suicide and as you can tell he's just He's come out the other side, um, just a better human being. So again, if you would like to donate, the website is waterford.org backslash dig deeper. And I was 100% serious that I will match up to $500 to any of your guys' donations. So if you do donate to the cause, please send me a screenshot of that and I will match up to $500. Right now, they're at 63% of their goal raised and all they need is uh, $9,200 more. So if you do feel the need to donate, I really do appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I'll see you guys next week. Peace.